The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great-tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Rack Razam is the world's leading experiential journalist, writing about and helping shape the emergence of a new cultural paradigm in the 21st century. A writer, film producer and culture maker, he bridges the worlds of shamanism, consciousness and popular culture. To find out more about Rack, visit rackrazam.com. That's R-A-K-R-A-Z-A-M.com. I'm so pleased to have Rak Razam on the podcast with me today. And firstly, g'day Rak, how are you, mate? G'day, I'm really good, Pete. Now, let's start off, and I know we probably don't want to call us uh, by different names or different titles, but you are regarded as a, an experiential journalist, so I, I'm very fascinated to know what that actually means and for you to tell our listeners what an experiential journalist is. You know, here's a good one because we're in this very timely era of what they're calling fake news and post-truth and who do you believe anymore, right? And so old school journalism used to be that you had to be very, very objective and you couldn't get too close to the story. Now, back in the uh, the 60s and sort of the new wave of experiential filmmaking and experimenting with things and with journalism – they had different writers who would get closer to the subject. One of the more famous ones was Hunter Thompson, and he called it gonzo journalism. Essentially, you know, you embed yourself in different cultures and different scenarios and ways of experiencing the world, and you report on it firsthand. So I sort of, um, you know, tidied that up a bit for the new millennium and called it experiential journalism. It is a, an offshoot of, of journalism, but it basically means that to really understand things, you have to be part of them, not separate from it. So, you know, I started off reporting 11 years ago on, uh, well, it was, uh, it was Albert Hoffman, the, uh, the chemist who discovered LSD. It was his 100th birthday party. He was alive and well, and there was a scientific symposium held in Basel, Switzerland, and all the world's media went. And that's where I started my uh, experiential journalism career, and it's flourished since then. 
fantastic. So tell me about what it is that you actually, I guess, write about and experience in this uh, realm as being a journalist these days. What is it that fascinates you? You know, I, I don't know about everyone else, but I find it such an interesting time, almost in the ancient Chinese proverb-curse uh you know, context, may you live in interesting times, you know, it's, uh, it's where really seem to be on the point of uh, cultural and global transformation. And so, you know, to be a journalist, I'm essentially also a seeker, you know, I'm someone who's interested in what truth is, in what, I don't know, like, in, in what a, a life well lived is, like, what does it mean to be alive in the 21st century? What does it mean to be part of uh, you know, a global transformation when old cultural norms, old ways of being are falling away by the wayside. And it, when they're proven inadequate to the, the changing nature of these times, some of the best maps we have of ways to live and ways to be uh, sustainable in a changing world are tribal models and archaic models. So, you know, in my research, I've um, I started off documenting consciousness and technology and spirituality and commenting on the rise of um, or the return, the resurgence of psychedelic research uh, in the medical fold in the West. And I quickly moved into the pursuit of shamanism and report was reporting on um, the rise of a, a plant medicine called ayahuasca, which is very, very popular now. And I first reported on that 11 years ago for different periodicals. And that turned into a book, and the book eventually turned into a documentary film. So my evolution has also been sort of paralleling my spiritual path. And, uh, you know, it doesn't stop at just journalism. It's making media about things that, that really matter to me and matter to many people about how we can interact with the planet, how we can learn from indigenous cultures, how we can basically find our hearts and souls again and not just be little units that work in cubicles and it's great if you do and if you're passionate about your life and 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 that's good but how can we confine the the heart and soul of what it means to be human and how we can not just expand our consciousness but how we can embody ourselves in this world and how we can learn you know the full spectrum of what it means to be human so when you talk about consciousness and the human desire to to expand it or or to obtain it what do you what are you actually talking about there can you take us through the origins of this and where it's at at this particular moment in history so in the last decade or so i guess i've been become quite a global expert on uh, the psychedelic renaissance, on the shamanic resurgence, on different plant medicines uh, like ayahuasca and now the Sonoran Desert Toad, which contains 5-MeO-DMT, on substances which the earth herself secretes and which tribal people in shamanic societies have a place for and an understanding of and how they use those things to understand their own health, their own well-being um, and their place in the web of life and how to come back into that web of life. And so um, it's, a, it's a really big subject and it may be new to many people, although it's more and more in the mainstream news every day. There's organizations in the U.S. like MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. They've been working uh, within academia and policy and government outreach for about 30 years now in to bring psychedelic substances back into the medical fold and to use them to help heal people. So they're, they're at their stage three clinical trial studies with different substances like psilocybin, 
which is the the chemical name for the ingredient in the so-called magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. Now, the magic mushrooms are a really interesting one because um, in Oaxaca in Mexico and through all different regions of Mesoamerica, these are incredibly sacred substances that have been used for hundreds if not thousands of years. And it was only in the 50s when Gordon Wasson, an investment banker who was an amateur mycologist, brought them to the attention of the West and sort of kick-started the, the psychedelic revolution. Psilocybin's been proven in recent tests to help treat people who have late-stage uh, cancer and to alleviate pain, to alleviate their fear of dying. Um, it's been proven to engender um, a, a numinous or a spiritual experience. This sense of connectedness, this uh, idea of neurogenesis in the brain, that it seems to replenish or repair the brain or reroute different pathways, it has in so many different applications, not just in the medical, but in the spiritual and the interconnection. MAPS have been doing studies with LSD for the same, for PTSD. They've been doing studies with Iraqi war veterans and treating them with MDMA in clinical scenarios and embedding that with trained therapists who work with patients to get over their blockages and uh, things like that. So basically, there's this whole spectrum of, uh, of medicines, some derived from plant medicines and shamanic cultures, some derived from more recreational drugs or what the street has used them for. But if you apply them in different ways, they can be incredibly healing. They can help people find themselves again, release trauma, release PTSD. And they have, that's only the tip of the iceberg, you know. So there's all these uh, modern ways where reinterpreting the idea of consciousness and the idea of how we engage with chemicals and plant medicines and earth medicines and then how they make us feel because what I actually learned when I went down to Peru in 2006 in the, in the Amazonian understanding, their indigenous understanding of medicine is very different from ours. In their understanding, they work with all the plants of the rainforest, and they have thousands and thousands of different medicines and foods and things like that they get from the jungles. And they understand right relationship in this idea that, you know, in the West, we just take a pill or we just pigeonhole things or compartmentalize them down to what is sick and what is well. But in their understanding, they believe we have like three bodies. There's a physical body, but there's also an energetic body. There's an, uh, an emotional body. And the course of illness or dis-ease and not being at ease, it starts at these finer bodies. You know, like Chinese medicine also has understanding of the energy body and chakras and all of these things. It's almost as if, that you know, we're coming to this stage in world culture where we can integrate different tribal and indigenous and different cultures' understandings of the world and of health and of well-being and apply them to our, our, our own peoples. Um, and so, you know, in their understanding of what medicine is, it's more of a relationship you have with your own unconscious, with uh, any emotional traumas you may have stored over time and believing that they store in our energetic bodies and they come through in the emotional body and they eventually can, can result in, uh, you know, in, in sickness into the physical body. So all of these things is a long sort of roundabout way to approach this idea that a lot of the work I do is commenting on consciousness and health and well-being through the lenses of both psychedelic culture and shamanic culture. That's, that's fascinating. So when you're talking about this, you call these different secretions, as you call it, from the earth as medicines for, I guess, the body, mind and spirit. Would that be what you're saying here? Yeah, you know, if you go back far enough, I mean, I, 
it's really hard to have an attention span in modern culture, you know. It, it used to be longer than it was, but nowadays it's very short sound bites. Everything's very truncated, and we we really remember, you know, a, a few, you know, a seven year cycle. But I mean, if you go all the way, if you go a fair way back a few centuries, what medicine was was originally part of alchemy, you know, and there was chemistry and alchemy, and there's this whole um, route to get to what is modern medicine. Now, modern medicine, of course, and obviously has very vast technological advances and we can, you know, analyze and understand in a very intricate way. But one thing I think we've lost sight of is this holistic sense of interconnectedness and the way that one thing affects another thing and the fact that nothing is separate. So, you know, people's emotions and people's well-being um, directly affect their health and can result in, in illness and sickness. And so much of modern society is medicated and so much of medicine is also within a sort of corporate model, you know, and tied to the, the drug companies and big pharma, as they say. And so we really have a very, um, it's not to say that within that paradigm, there's not a lot of advances and understanding in, in medicine and in science. It's just that it's blinkered, you know, it just has a very a short sort of narrow vision. But in many different cultures, their understanding of what medicine is is very different. So to use the example of the Amazon, where I've, I've done a lot of work and I, I lead ayahuasca retreats over in Peru as well. And so I've, I've, I've talked to and I've interviewed as a journalist. When, when I started out, it was as a journalist. And the deeper I went on the path, the more I got into this the more, you know, you go down the rabbit hole and you realize it's bigger than you ever imagined. So in our culture, we have this separation, right? And this has <laughs> happened as specialization has happened as well, where in the Amazon, what we call the shaman is essentially this sort of mashup between a few different Western roles or what's become Western roles of the doctor, the priest, you know, the counselor, the showman, these different modalities, which are all blended together into the person who in the indigenous culture in their village looks after their health and well-being. Mm -hmm. And they do that um, in mediation of energy. And they believe that there's an expanded worldview. They believe there's essentially like, you know, an astral world and that the, the energetic ecology that affects us in the physical extends out into an energetic world, which is invisible in the electromagnetic spectrum. But with the aid of their plant medicines, they can see and interact with uh, to mediate the health of their communities. So it's usually a role which is very much in service. And in their native language, at least in Peru, they call themselves the curanderos and the curanderas, which is from the Spanish, and it means to heal. So they're essentially healers. But to heal, you know, they, they have different subspecialities. There's vegetalistas that work with many plant medicines. There's ayahuasqueros, which specifically work with ayahuasca and perfumeros. There's many different ways to skin a cat. But essentially, you know, they're healers. And they do that by keeping uh, the person in health with their plant medicines. One of these plant medicines they work with is called ayahuasca, which is getting a lot of press these days. I mean, it's it's been reported on in the last decade pretty much by every major, um, you know, magazine, TV show, periodical, everyone's covered it from Time Magazine to Wired to New York Times um, in different ways because there's been an incredible boom of people going down to the Amazon to, to search out ayahuasca and the shamans of the Amazon. So tell me, what are they searching out in particular? Is it different for each person? that goes on a ayahuasca, I guess, adventure? Or tell me about that. Well, again, see, the, the language is so different because there's the, the mainstream press. Like I know Sydney Morning Herald Online and 
the hack I've done a few uh, on, on Triple J. I've done a few ayahuasca stories. And whenever, again, this is, comes back to the idea about, you know, experiential journalism versus mainstream journalism, which is under attack from the fake news sort of, you know, angle these days. But the idea that, you know, you can be objective and you can have two sides to the story. But usually in mainstream media, you always have to end up calling it a drug and all end up calling it and show the show the negative sides and watch out for the dangers. And yes, that, that is balanced journalism and you have to show both sides. But essentially the thing they can't get into is that this is a deep spiritual experience which is directly connected to the health and well-being of the people going and it's not drug tourism as some people like to label it it's essentially you know a culture which which is going down to the amazon in search of something they can't find in the west mm -hmm. and when i first interviewed the curanderos and i've got two books out by the way so my my first initial story you know, it was a 3,000-word article on the, the shamans of the Amazon for Australian penthouse back in 2006. That just didn't stop it. You know, I was there for three months originally in 2006, and the notes from that became a book called Aya Awakenings, and then that was turned into a documentary film, which you can find at aya-awakenings.com. Mm -hmm. But essentially, when I first interviewed the, the curanderos of the Amazon, what they said to me is this. Some people are coming down in search of physical healing. Now, when people go down to Peru and, and work with ayahuasca, it's usually not just ayahuasca. People do a dieta, what they call a dieta. And essentially, it means you're having abstinence and you're giving up certain things which are affecting your body and your health. So when they train to be a shaman or a curandero, it takes decades. And they train from a very early age. The maestro shaman that I work with, Percy Garcia, in uh, in Peru, that's side of Iquitos, this little jungle city, he started training at age 10. And he worked with his grandfather, who was a shaman. And basically, it meant that you give up salt, sugar, red meat, oil, uh, certain things that, you know, if over time you take them, start, as we know, with food, right? Start to affect your body, lifestyle habits, and your health. There's a lot of different diet fads in the West now, but we all know food is medicine, and food is the thing which really affects our consciousness and our health. So, one thing that the, the shamans of the Amazon were saying is to work with things like ayahuasca, and in their understanding, ayahuasca is, well, it's a combination of two plants. You take a vine, the Banisteriopsis carpi, which contains harmine and harmaline, and you take admixture plants like chacruna, uh, which contain a chemical called D, uh, dimethyltryptamine or DMT. You mix them together in a brew, and when you drink it, you have this incredibly visionary experience, but that's just like the interior visionary experience because what's happening in their understanding is in their understanding there is a spirit in ayahuasca and in their understanding there is a spirit in all living things it's like the the japanese idea of an animist religion that that there's a spark of life or a soul in everything and everything has not just intelligence but emotion and is part of a greater world soul and so they believe when they work with ayahuasca they're engaging with the spirit of ayahuasca on behalf of the healing of their patients. And for people that have had ayahuasca, it's it can be very hard to refute these interior experiential experiences because something very tangible happens. And the very basis of science is trial and error. Like try it, try out a hypothesis, see what happens, and then repeat. If it's re repeatable, there's something to it. So in the in the Amazon, they call this the science of curanderismo or being a, a curandero to heal. And so they work with this brew, but they also work with the diet to reduce certain foods, especially sugars, which they say interfere with our sensitivity. 
And so essentially what they're doing and what they've been trained to do from very young ages is to remain energetically sensitive enough through the diet to be able to feel again, to be able to feel the sensitivity of nature, which is all around them in the jungle. Hmm. And through that sensitivity to engage with the spirits that are in everything that they can call to for questions and answers and work on behalf of healing. I mean, they work with the physical brews as well and the plants they work with. But in their tradition, they, they believe that the world is bigger. It's bigger than just this flatline nine to five, you know, global battery farm world that we live in, that mm. everything has this spirit. And so they're surrounded by it in the jungle. And so by going on a pilgrimage or going on, you know, a commitment down to the jungles, People are giving up certain things. They're going on this dieta and they're bringing their bodies back to a more equilibrium state of, you know, a clean state like when they were first born. Newborn babies are very sensitive, very tuned into the world and the energies of things. We all have the potential for this sensitivity. But if you think about it, our nine to five world doesn't encourage that. And our nine to five world is a legacy of the Victorian era, industrialization, the factory system, and what became the globalized 20, 21st century. You know, it's like the culture gets the drugs it deserves or the stimulants it needs to keep the culture going. And we've had this period of history. So cultures like that in the Amazon who have had these shamanic medicines, these very sacred substances, these plant medicines have lived with one foot in another culture closer to nature and mm. they've retained these sacred substances for a time when we need them and so tens of thousands of people are experiencing ayahuasca in the jungles of peru every year and there's a whole lodge system that's been set up to cater to that but essentially you know i believe they're pilgrims they're not just tourists and it's not just you know a um another sort of tourist activity you do it's incredibly hard work uh, we haven't mentioned that ayahuasca is also a purgative. So what it does, it actually goes through your body and, you know, the cleaner you are, the, the better sort of more vegetarian lifestyle you've led, you're probably energetically cleaner to begin with. But for the majority of people, ayahuasca is a purgative and they vomit and they do vomit up a lot of um, things that need to be cleaned out of their system. Uh, but they've done, you know, tests and scientific studies in ayahuasca and it has these tangible results. So it's basically cleaning out a lot of the bad bacteria in your body, the stomach biota, the uh, you know 10 trillion uh, microorganisms that live with you in your stomach biota that you can't live without. When people crave sugars and things like that, it's quite often these stomach uh, microorganisms, these microbiota organisms, which are the things doing the cravings. There's been so many really fascinating scientific studies on uh, why we crave what we crave with foods and, and what the benefit is. But ayahuasca cleans out a lot of the bad ones and it brings you back into balance, into equilibrium on a physical level. And then on an emotional level, what it seems to do, they've done some EEG and MRI scans with ayahuasca, it seems to sort of experientially bring up your subconscious mind into your conscious mind, into this sort of lucid dreaming state. And you sort through a lot of your emotional stuff. So for people that have traumas, and most people do have something buried in their subconscious or anxieties or all the ills of Western culture from the battery farm sort of, you know, mentality which creates stresses in us, and, you know, so many of us are all stressed, it can be an incredibly powerful and efficient detox from that stress by also revealing and, you know, purging 
the traumatic memories which are lodged, they believe, in our emotional bodies and our energetic bodies, and they purge out with the physical purge. So there's multiple components to this. And then on top of that, there can be incredible virtual reality like, you know, 3D hologrammatic um, visionary scenes which seem very, very impossibly real, you know, realer than real. And so, you know, in the Amazonian tradition, they believe they're sort of space-time machines, that they, they, they're accessing different abilities of consciousness to interact with the whole space-time continuum. And they've been doing this for thousands of years. And to them, it's a technology and a medicine. And to, to, for us just to reduce it down to the idea that it's a drug is, quite frankly, an insult to, to the intelligence and to the legacy of these cultures. So it's a big subject. And that's just ayahuasca, right? And that's the idea of medicine in their culture and what it can do and how it's not just even ayahuasca, but the idea of the dieta. And when I first went down, you know, a decade ago, the shaman said to me, some people come down to work on healing themselves. They may have cancers or they may have, you know, autoimmune conditions or things. And yes, those things have physical reasons they have happened. But also there's a lot of deep emotional blocks and deep traumatic things which people have contributed perhaps to their physical ailments. But they said that's actually only a small minority of people. The vast majority of people who are still to this day, I believe, going down to the Amazon to experience ayahuasca or who are experiencing ayahuasca across the world, because in the last decade that I've been involved in this culture, it is a vine and it has spread its tendrils around the world. And there's many, many practitioners in the West now who are working with this medicine. The majority of people were going with a sickness, but not a physical one. The, the shaman said they felt that the majority of people had a, a sense of disconnection, mm. a sense of not belonging a sense of not knowing who they were or what's it all about? What is life all about? Like surely there was something more than where they were coming from in their home countries and they were going back to the jungles in search of meaning and connection and these things which ayahuasca was a doorway for. It's not the answer. It's a doorway to travel through to find deeper questions within yourself. And, you know, I've been working with this medicine for 11 years now and I can say it is profoundly transformative and profoundly challenging. It's not easy. It's not recreational. There's the purge. There's the hard work. There's many hours in a Malacca floor in the jungles of Peru while the shaman sings his magic songs, his Icaros, and, you know, facilitates the healing and holding that space for you to go through this journey. But you have to do the work as well. It's not just so you take the red pill and escape the matrix. You drink the ayahuasca, and then you're in for the ride of your life. So it's, it's very much hard work. But it's also what I've come to see in the last decade. It's part of this bridging and this reconciliation between the old world and the new world and this understanding that there's only one world, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's that, you know, Western medical science is great, but when it's in this, um, you know, pharmacological model and this idea, it, it takes the power away from people. It's like, take this thing to suppress your anxiety or take this antidepressant because you're unhappy with your life and, you, and you know let's not dig deeper into the root causes these experiences with shamanic medicines are real and they're powerful and they force us to look at ourselves and they help us to reconnect to the web of life and that's just a phrase but when you experientially and viscerally feel this reconnection to these larger aspects that you never knew you had within you the consciousness is like you know, it's like this 10-bar spectrum and we've only been using one bar of, 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 our, of our capacity. Once these things are awakened within us, 
you can't go back. So talking about that and being experiential and also talking about the science behind it and saying that uh, you have to test it out. So when people do have their first experience, for instance, what are the, some of the results or what do people come out and say in improvement in certain areas of their life, whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual? Uh, can you touch on that for us? Yeah, I mean, it's always up to the individual because we, we're all different in our wounds. And so in, in what they need healing is also different. So there's been a lot of different ways people approach what they're getting from these medicines. Ayahuasca is one of the most studied of these medicines all around the world globally. There's been different scientific tests done with EEG and MRI scans of the brain looking at what's happening into different areas of the brain on ayahuasca. It seems to increase people's sense of mood and well-being and works on the serotonin pathways. On a personal level, you know, people say that it's like it's like a, a year's worth of psychotherapy in one night, that people get to really know themselves and there's no escaping the answers, you know. It's like once you can see what causes your personality behaviors or um, different issues with you, you change. You change your relationship with them. So people have different relationships that they uh, cleanse within themselves with their emotional issues. You know, people have had really pronounced uh, health benefits from both ayahuasca and the dieta in terms of different ailments people have, people going into remission of cancer, people curing different autoimmune diseases, things like that. And number one, I guess, for the majority of people is just this sense of reconnection, this sense that the, the world is bigger than they were led to believe and that they are part of it and they have this real um, interconnectedness with nature and with you know with everyone around them. And that we have this power within ourselves that we can exercise to contribute back to the world. So people have some very empowering results from working with medicines like ayahuasca. So when you talk about ayahuasca, I believe it's known as an entheogen. Is that correct? Is that the, the right terminology? Yeah, the word entheogen was coined by some academics in the 80s to get over the stigma of the word psychedelics. So you know, psychedelics means from the Greek mind manifesting, uh, or like Psyche was the Greek goddess of the mind, and entheogen means to invoke the divine within. So it's a subtle difference, and there's some banding about between, you know, academia and the more global psychedelic shamanic communities. But essentially, the entheogens uh, refer to the more um, planet-made materials. So you know, I mentioned psilocybin mushrooms at the start. Uh, there's also ayahuasca, there's San Pedro cactus, there's um, aliloquai, the morning glory seeds. There's iboga, which is uh, proving incredibly powerful to help cure addictions. It, it, it's like an addiction disruptor working on the parts of the brain which have the craving for addiction. It's um, an African root bark, which is originally used by the Bwiti tribe in Gabon in Africa, uh, the pygmy people. And basically on, on, on iboga, it's a root bark that you chew and you can be in an altered visionary state for up to three days. And in their culture, the entire village surrounds the person who is going through this initiation and this healing. And they sing to the person and they hold space for the person. And they tend to the person while they're in this incredible hallucinogenic visionary state. But they say that you, you meet the ancestors and you go almost like they describe it like, you know, on your phone and you go swiping through photos or Tinder or something where you can go swiping through all space time and then pinch and zoom in on one moment and then relive it in sort of, you know, five dimensional holographic intensity. And it's the one I haven't done yet. I, I, 
I basically, last year I started doing a, um, a documentary series that's online called Shamans of the Global Village, which you can find at shamansoftheglobalvillage.com. And episode one was on Octavio Reddig and the Sonoran Desert Toad, uh, which has the 5-MeO-DMT. But we're hoping to do episode two on Iboga in June next year and go over to Gabon and film that. Um, so that'll be interesting. There's also, as I just mentioned, the, uh, the Sonoran Desert Toad. So that is native to the Sonoran Desert in Mexico and across into Arizona in southern, in the southern U.S. That has quite possibly the most powerful entheogen known to anyone on the planet. Uh, the, the varius toad lives underground for nine months of the year. It's in total darkness. It has different parotoid glands over the toad and you can squeeze them when it comes up in the monsoon season. And the venom of the toad is, when smoked, contains the largest chemical in that is 5-MeO-DMT. Now, it gets really interesting when we start talking about the tryptamines and mention the word DMT because uh, there's been a few books and, and documentaries released on DMT. The most famous was, was DMT, the spirit molecule, about five or seven years ago now. It's on Netflix. You can check that out. And there's NNDMT, which is in the ayahuasca brew, the visionary component. 5-MeO-DMT is essentially the thing which mystics all through time have called the white light, the tunnel, the death or near-death experience. Both these chemicals occur naturally in the human brain. They're endogenous to the human brain, and they're potentially what science is thinking is part of what connects us to the dreaming each night. And also when we have birth near-death or death experiences, that sense of the afterlife of consciousness going somewhere else outside of the body, 5-MeO-DMT can really catapult you very, very quickly into this sense of unity consciousness of what they like to sort of politically correct call non-dual states. So non-dual essentially means unity, and unity means you are connected to everything, you are everything, there is only one thing. And when the ego, the filter of the ego, which is uh, what the pre, what collapses on 5-MeO-DMT, the prefrontal cortex, that sense of ego completely is obliterated. It's like ego death. But there can be just enough consciousness left to experience the experience of ego death. And in that state, it's what the mystics all through time have called the white light tunnel, this sense, this numinous sense of the source, or as George Lucas called it, the force, what some people may use the big G word and call it God, this really post-language experience of the divine, you know, and it it is in our human brains. And if there's so much to this, there's so much to this subject, you know, I, I, I really... I really recommend people check out rackrazam.com. I've got quite a lot of talks I've done over the last decade and links to books and films and videos and things like that because it's a really huge subject because most people don't know about any of this, you know. Most people, um, and it's a growing number of people are discovering it in all walks of life. Ayahuasca is hugely popular now, so is the toad medicine becoming more popular all through the world. Um, a lot of celebrities have been doing ayahuasca, things like that. It's trickling down and it's getting out there. And there's dangers of that, of commodification of these sacred substances. But number one, it has the potential that people open to understanding that these are vegetal and earth-based, you know, technologies of the sacred, which all they're really doing is unlocking our ability to be bigger than we were told we are, to, to unlock our full potential. You know, they did tests back in the 60s with LSD, 
which is a man-made chemical. It's one molecule different from LSA, which is in the morning glory seeds, the liliquai of the Mesoamerican tribes. And it has, you know, an effect of expanding consciousness. But they did test back in the 60s where they discovered that LSD is actually metabolized by the human body within 19 minutes. And the actual experience of LSD, for instance, usually does not is not felt by the person taking it for about half an hour. So what they've they're pointing towards, and they've done really recent tests in in England with the Beckley Foundation, this not for profit, um, with with MRI and EEG, and they've proven essentially that what happens on these substances, whether it's a psychedelic or an entheogen, is that they're affecting the filtering mechanisms of the brain. And these things are not the things which cause the effect. They switch on and off different parts of the brain called the default mode network. And when they're switched off, what remains is the brain is receiving the full spectrum or an enlarged spectrum of consciousness, which is always being broadcast, but we usually filter out. Hmm. That's amazing. It's amazing, right? <laughs> so at this exact time we have in, in global history, we, we have this planetary crisis, right? Because of what we've, of this, this legacy of all history of unsustainability, of, you know, incredibly bad resource management in retrospect, of what we've done in history, of taking and taking and taking because we fell out of right relationship with Mother Earth. Almost all the indigenous tribes all around the world share different languages, but they share a common understanding. In Peru, they call it Pachamama. You know, in Australia here, maybe they'll say, you know, the, the rainbow spirit and the dream time and the land. There's this all the idea of the land being sacred, to not take things from the land, to live in concert and balance and reciprocation with the land. But in Western culture, in human history, we've gone out of balance and we've created this global catastrophe, whether you believe in global warming or not, there's this sense of urgency, this sense of crisis with, you know, political systems, the media systems, the cultural systems, and the planetary systems of the ecology and the environment being pretty much extreme weather and out of control and things speeding up. And at this exact time in human history, here come these amazing tools to help us remember who and what we really are. So it's very, very different from the 60s in the sense of it's not about recreation. It's not about, um, you know, teenage culture or youth culture. It's men and women of all professions, of all ages. I, I've had people in my ayahuasca retreats who are 70, you know, and it's, it, it's like all ages, all socioeconomic groups who are discovering that there are these tools out there of consciousness they don't do the work. They just unlock the keys in you to show you your full capability. How wonderful that we have this opportunity at this time because in the planetary emergency, I believe we are seeing a planetary emergence and something is coming out of this because it has to if we're going to survive. My family and I have been using beautiful, high-quality essential oils for the last 20 years to live healthily every single day. Now, if you're passionate about health and are ready to step into leadership, I want to invite you to partner with my team and I to build a beautifully successful doTERRA business. Register at PeteHLC.com backslash Pete. That's PeteHLC, which stands for the Healthy Living Collective, dot com backslash Pete. 
So you touched, I mean, it's mind-blowing, literally. And you, you touched on it then talking about non-duality or going back to the source or the force, if you want to quote George Lucas there from Star Wars. And how does that fit in with modern-day religion or ancient religion, if we want to call it that? Because from my understanding, a lot of religious beliefs is based on a dualistic philosophy. Good question. Good question, Pete. Well, look, it's interesting because, you know, I mentioned psilocybin in the start. Back in the 60s, they did tests with placebos and with psilocybin, and they gave it to divinity students at John Hopkins uh, in the 60s. They did follow-up tests uh, in the early noughts in the last five, five or ten years. And in each time, these divinity students who took the psilocybin said that it was still, to that day, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, they would say it was one of the top spiritual experiences or sense of God, of direct connection with God they'd ever felt. And these are people training to be priests, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, that's just psilocybin. But with 5-MeO, five, five on, on, on most of these entheogens, your consciousness is expanded, but you're still there. 5-MeO is unique in that, um, you know, I, I know many, many meditators. I first did the toad medicine in 2015 when a Mexican shaman was visiting and worked with him. And, oh, my God, it's like I had first done, if you check out iraawakenings.com, iraya-awakenings.com, you can find my film. There's a 20-minute segment in the documentary Ira Awakenings where I did synthetic 5-MeO-DMT for the first time. It's pretty scary. It's pretty out there. We tried to recreate what it was like on the inside with the white light and the tunnel and this never-ending, this endless infinity of, like, explosion of everything. Like, I know it's just words, right? It's ridiculous Mm -hmm. to try and encapsulate this, but this is the problem. Here we are talking, and here the listeners are listening, and we think we know ourselves, but this isn't who we really are, right? This is our ego selves. And ego's got a bit of a bad rap over the years. You know, um, the ego is a wonderful tool for navigating and surviving down here on planet Earth in the complexity of everything that's going on. I've got two kids, right? I, I, I clocked the last one when she was born. I would look at her those first six months before they can actually focus, you know, and you can see it. They are in this non-dual unity state of consciousness. They've come from who knows where we come from before we're born. I believe it's souls incarnating in your, your, your birth. But when you're in the body, they're still not fully, you know, they haven't locked down into an ego state. They're still connected to this, this larger sense of reality and they're not focusing. So in a sense, what the ego does over time, it filters and focuses us down to be able to navigate and survive, to learn to walk, to crawl, to speak, to engage in mammalian politics, whether that's just I'm hungry, I want food. And, you know, it just starts to extrapolate from there. But we forget that there's this greater oceanic sense of being that we don't normally tap into. So a lot of the Eastern uh, mystic schools, a lot of the meditation schools, a lot of the different cultures that have left behind maps of consciousness, like the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Rig Veda, their holy book has hundreds of pages of altered states. I mean, hundreds. I mean, you've got to study these books. Other cultures have done this before. They had their entheogens. The, uh, the Rig Veda talks about a, um, a substance called Soma, which enabled them to be like gods or connect with the gods and merge into this sort of unity state. They left behind in their Sanskrit maps 
uh, of consciousness, these stages of samadhi, what they call samadhi, which is like grand unification with the absolute Godhead. And they left behind this idea of how to meditate to diminish or reduce the ego filter to then get to these states. Now, with plant medicines and with toad medicine and things like that, you can get there very, very quickly. It may be the left-hand path, some people in those schools of thought may say, but also these are substances which were used by originating uh, Vedic scholars all the way back then, as they document in the Rig Vedas. So essentially what I'm getting at, the, the tie between religion and these states has, in most of the world's religious cultures, had some type of catalyst, some entheogenic catalyst. But what they're also doing is they're teaching us how to navigate the invisible landscape of the mind, what, what we call in, in, in Latin the terra incognita. And so, you know, these maps of consciousness, we can learn meditation. It's very, very helpful to have the practice and the, the rigor of a, a meditation practice to go into a psychedelic state or a non-dual unity state like with the, the buffo or various toad medicine. It helps but then once you get into it, you just have to release and surrender and let go because the whole point is to learn how to let go of the ego and realize that we are not the ego. The ego is a role or a function within the larger consciousness of the human organism. And you know what they say in modern sort of scientific thinking, the ego may only be a few ten thousands of years old. You know, we've survived as a species for hundreds of thousands of millions of years without an ego but we've, you know, perfected it as a tool of consciousness, and it's worked very well in some ways, and in other ways it takes over, and we become prisoners of the ego. So the idea, especially even with shamanic medicines, is not to destroy the ego, but to remember the right relationship, its right place, to put it, you know, back, you know, behind the steering wheel, not in front of it, and then to learn about these other capacities we have within ourselves. So what you're saying is basically a technology at the moment that helps you get into a state or experience something larger than our ego or our waking life normally experiences. Yeah, you know, people have these, these spontaneous mystical experiences. It's, it's quite common, really. I mean, they're not common, but it's not uncommon. You hear of it in people, people in, in different, you know, you could give different languages to this. People have spontaneous kundalini awakenings or energetic awakenings. And we have, you know, we have this whole circuit board of like potential within ourselves that we don't often activate. People have spontaneous understandings of uh, unity consciousness or of the divine. It used to be a lot more common before the 20th century, before EMFs and artificial lighting and things which have been interfering with our um, natural biorhythms and our ability to receive the signal. And you've got to remember, and this is what the shamans of the Amazon say, it's all about your sensitivity. If you're a sensitive, you know, and there are many people who are affected by EMFs in the world today, many people who are starting to get more modern diseases and more modern repercussions from our technologies and the unforeseen flow-through effects from them. People who are sensitive, they're the ones who are gifted. They're the ones who can, if they were out in nature and they were receiving a clear signal, they would probably have these type of experiences more often. It's mm -hmm. been this drift of history and, you know, uh, industrialization and mechanization that has filtered us down into you know, working people who work, you know, and it's like box ourselves off from the flow of energy and from nature. 
And so we've retarded to a large degree our innate human ability to receive the signal. And so in this sensitization, there, there is some great gains that can be made by using these shamanic technologies of the sacred, whatever, you know, whatever modality you're using, whether it's ayahuasca, whether it's breath work, whether it's tantra, whether it's meditation or combinations thereof, to not just go on these, have these experiences, but to increase our sensitivity, to get to the point where we remember where these capacities are within ourselves. We talk about this a lot. Obviously, I talk about food as part of my profession and, and that food is, a, is probably the, the lowest hanging fruit part of the pun, but for us to regain some sort of understanding or, or connection to the earth and also to ourselves and, and start to feel great by using food as medicine, as you stated uh, early in this in this piece. But I also say that food isn't the ultimate. It's not the be-all and end-all. We have to look at what we're drinking. Uh, we have to look at how we're moving our body, how we're breathing. Are we getting out into the sunshine and getting vitamin D? But the one thing I, I always stress is are we getting adequate sleep? And what is our emotional health really like? Are you in a relationship that isn't fulfilling? Do you have stress from your job or any external experiences that you might be having? And it's the one thing that I always say to people, I don't have the answer for those things. Obviously, there's different therapists and different types of things you can do to help you with the emotional stress. And obviously, you're saying that plant medicines or entheogens are helping some people out there in the world. And potentially, this has a role in the future for human, I guess, healing and to be used as a form of medicine in conjunction with modern science as well. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is that there's a unification of old world and new and got to be really careful on some levels to not say that these things are for everyone, you know, because they're not. But what they can be is very valuable tools to help a lot of people in ways that the Western pharmaceutical model isn't helping people, you know. They're very effective and they've been tried and true with, with many indigenous cultures for hundreds if not thousands of years. So it's just that the West has forgotten and we're, we're really coming full circle and we're coming to a remembrance of what the full you know, gamut of, uh, of substances are out there. All these things as well, they don't have patents on them. They're not commercially viable in the same way that big drug companies can, you know, like the iboga I was talking about before, they've made an extract from iboga uh, they call ibogaine and they use it in a lot of Mexican drug clinics and getting really good results. But it's only like one isolated chemical from the root bark, which has like multiple, you know, different things in it. But it also doesn't have that same tribal structure. It doesn't have that whole village, you know, going around and helping heal the person. And it might not be as emotional. It's like in, in the rush to sort of commercialize things and make medicines from things and make money off things. You know, Western culture has been really focused on sort of like the assembly line and the way they can bulk reproduce things. And everyone's slightly different. Obviously, things need to be safe for people on a certain level. But these, these shamanic medicines, they help, they help people get to know themselves and they help get to know why they're sick and how they can improve their health. And they're not miracle cures because then you have to go live your life. You have to pick up the pieces of the knowledge you've learned and apply it, you know. So you have this essentially peak experience, but it's really about the integration and, and then what 
what that makes of you, like what this knowledge, like what do you do with it? And how do you then live a better life and be a better person? And so what I'm seeing is that we're having basically a shamanic generation, which is really fastly metabolizing across the world. And in the last 10 years, it's got to have quadrupled in terms of demographics and who's into it. Um, and if you just do a search online for, you know, entheogens or ayahuasca or things like that, you'll get so many results and you'll see that it's it's a really vibrant and burgeoning subculture, but uh, it has a lot of um, promise for, for, for a lot of people. You're talking about energy here, uh, from what I understand and from what I've experienced. It's energy and, and when you're looking at what's happening in science at the moment from a subatomic level, I guess, they're also looking for, I think you call it, the God molecule, but they're also looking for the God particle, I believe. So you've got these opposing views or, or coming at it from a different angle. And when they're going down to the subatomic level to work out what exactly it is, they're finding that it is just energy and it's very undefinable. Well, they are. It's, it's quite funny. I mean, I remember there's that, there's that famous book from the 70s, The Tao of Physics, which looks at, you know, the Tao and, and Chinese sort of mysticism and its its world it map and its understanding of reality, and then looked at physics, you know, and quantum physics. And essentially, you know, the languages are slightly different, but they're saying the same thing. They're saying that things are interconnected. They're saying that it all goes back all the way to light or down to the, the structure of an atom or beyond. But there's, you know, even in looking, they're looking for God everywhere, you know, but they don't know what to do when, when you find God. I mean, it's a really contentious thing to use the word God in modern culture, right? Because we've gone through this whole rejection of religious dogma of centuries of the different religions and churches. And for anyone listening, I support and believe that all religions have a place. If they're, you know, that they, the holy books are originally something which have good morals or good ideas or good ways to live. But a lot of modern culture has rejected them because it's, it's, they seem so distant. It's like we're questing and we're almost hungry for an authentic feeling of a religion which isn't just something we learn in books, but it's something we feel in our hearts. And mm. this is potentially the promise of things like entheogens and of uh, these substances that they can take us back to, again, an experiential way of experiencing the divine within you know, and it's like it's something tangible and it's something real and it's something which is a healing path and it's out there and it's growing. A couple of questions still to go. So you touched on it that this isn't for everybody in your opinion. So who should not pursue something like this, if that's the right term? Anyone with a history of, I guess, a mental imbalance or issues of that nature would probably be not in a correct frame of mind to do it. It's funny, though, because in these indigenous cultures all across the world, I mean, if you look at them, I mean, not the modern ones who have had contact with the West and the problems of the West and of the alcohol abuse and things like that of the West are different. But the original tribal cultures and the ones who are still in, intact to a degree, they don't necessarily have mental health issues. Hmm. They have people with sensitivities and those mental sensitivities are usually the people who become their shamans. They're the ones who are, who do talk to spirits, the ones who do connect to a world that's larger than the, the baseline world, but their cultures give them a place to slot into and they nurture them and they make them of value because they're incredibly valuable. But in our culture, we drug the sensitives and we, we try to make everyone the same and we try to suppress and repress. But people who do have 
any pre-existing conditions would be not a good candidate because it would it would just you would you would have to sort some things out first. People who have any serious illnesses, I guess, if they're on certain medications which may have contraindications, it's not for. But essentially, anyone who has a quest to know themselves, anyone who is willing to go beyond the pale and to really do the hard work of going through a, a, an altered state experience and the courage to go there, you know. So it's probably not for the really old or the really young or um, – I mean, every, every everything I'm saying here, I'm thinking about it as I say it, and it's like, God, I, I know so many of those counterexamples in tribal cultures where hmm. the really old and the really young – and what we would call the mentally impaired all do do these substances, but it's with the support of the tribe. Yeah. So, you know, no one should go into these things alone. People should really research it. People should figure out if it's right for them. It can be incredibly confronting. It's very confronting to go down to the jungles of the Amazon alone, much less drink a cup of this vile ayahuasca concoction in the middle of the night and purge up your insides and have this visionary experience, which is why you need to do it with trained people and have you know, the right coaching beforehand and the right integration and the right support afterhand. But whatever the experience is, if it's your time and you feel that you're called, then these pathways are available for people if they research it. And looking into the future, 10, 20, 30 years, where do you see these in modern day society? It's a very good question. I mean, there's, there's a couple of ways this could go, you know. I see a Hunger Games type future where pretty much everything is permissible for the elite classes that remain. Um, and within that, the soma of the masses and the things like the legalization of psychedelics to keep people subdued within a class-structured system may exist. Having said that, you know, there's a push probably by maybe 2020, maybe 2025, for the availability of MDMA as a legal prescription drug for therapists to use with people in therapy is out there. There's an initiative on the Californian uh, Senate at the moment to maybe legalize psilocybin in 2018. As we know, with all the medical marijuana and things in the States, it's quite huge and it's creating a, a wave of interest in other substances and their, their usage culturally. All of that, though, is sort of like more permissibility and absorbing these things into the existing class cultural structure. The great promise of entheogens in general is to completely transform the class cultural structure as we know it, to, to help facilitate the burgeoning in a way which is almost cliched as the butterfly, you know, from the caterpillar hmm. to things that we can at now only dream of, like to imagine utopias instead of this current, you know, Hollywood rash of dystopias of everything going wrong. Because, you know, science fiction is just one step ahead and it's reflecting what we're really going through now. But we need to start seeing utopias. We need to start looking at positive visions of the future, of ways that we can engage with each other as humans, in ways we can engage with the planet and her other species, in ways which we can reach beyond the planetary ecosystem out into the galaxy or inwards into the inner you know, dimensional capacities that these things reveal. If only a tenth of what we experience with these entheogens is actually true, it still completely transforms our view of reality and of what we're embedded in, you know, take the blinkers off and realize what life really is, what the earth really is, what what we're surrounded by, like, you know, uh, like 
life is everywhere and intelligent and alive and aware and we're part of it. So, you know, I think that perhaps these are training wheels to help us remember, as I said earlier, who and what we really are and then to prepare us for the fact, you know, if we have this increased sensitivity and this ability to connect back into nature and through nature and the web of life, who, you know, our place in, in reality, then I think we can step out into that greater reality. And we're only starting to see, you know, the edges of it. And only then through the lens and the maps that indigenous cultures have lent us. But it is awesome. It is huge. It's it's almost total science fiction. But I mean, this is how it this is how it happens. First, you imagine it and then it becomes real. You know, it's like these things start to usher in into our capacity of understanding. We start to marry science and mysticism and these abilities and put it together into a whole package and we realize, oh, hang on a sec, the world is bigger than we ever imagined and we have these capabilities that we never realized we had or that indigenous cultures have, you know, retained the ability for. And so potentially, you know, it can be a complete transformation of, of what we understand life to be in the future. It sounds like you have an optimistic uh, vision of the future like I do. Well, you know, I, I've partially been led to have that optimistic view of the future because I've had contact in these realms and with these experiences and with these, these horizons of possibility. Um, and, and also, it's not just, you know, seeing is believing. It's really what it does on a heart level that by resensitizing, you know, the original Latin word for religion is to reconnect Look it up. It really does. It means to reweave or reconnect. And then you've got to ask, well, what are you connecting to? You're connecting to each other. You're connecting to the planet. And you're connecting through your heart. That's the, you know, in the Amazon with ayahuasca and especially with toad medicine, which is this sense of unconditional love, it's this idea that through the lens of the heart, you connect to everything that really matters. You know everything that you need to know without words. Um, and because of that, you can then bring back a sense of positivity, a sense of hope, you know? I've got goosebumps. <laughs> I do. I can't thank you enough for your time today, Rack. And it's wonderful to hear you speak. And I know it's going to be very different for my listeners to, I guess, go down this journey of consciousness expansion and to hear this podcast because it is very different from cooking up something in the kitchen and what I'm, I'm normally talking about, but uh, I really appreciate it. And one thing I'd love to finish off with is for yourself, obviously, through your experience, you look at life potentially different with different eyes, the same eyes, but uh, after your experiences, they might have changed the priorities and everything. And I'd love for you to be able to share, I guess, it's called Recipes for Life. So what are your three ingredients for you that make up a successful recipe for life? Yeah, that's a very good question, Pete. I like that. I think love is definitely the key ingredient you can put in into anything. I would say service, you know, back mm -hmm. is also a very key ingredient. And I would say joy hmm. because, you know, you know, you know what it's like as a chef. It's like, your energy goes into the things that you create, the things that you bake, the things that you cook, the things that you make, you know. So there's got to be joy in that. There's got to be joy. There's got to be love. And to put all that into service for the betterment of the world is, in my eyes, you know, that, that's a perfect world recipe. 
<laughs> Goosebumps again, mate. That was, um, I, I think that's, it's definitely going to resonate with uh, our listeners. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for your honesty. Thank you so much for your investigative journalism, <laughs> which is uh, rare these days. I, I do like to say that my words are my medicine. So even by listening to this podcast, listeners, I know it might be different from Pete's normal self, but you know, feast upon the ideas. Do do your own research. You know, look up some more words. Look up different things. You can find me at rakrazam.com, Also, my website aya-awakenings.com, shamansoftheglobalvillage.com. Uh, I've even got another website that called the Terra Incognita Project.org, which looks into five um, meo DMT, toad medicine, and neuroscience. So there's some interesting links there on the the latest scientific developments. And so I'd be really, really privileged to uh, if people want to outreach and uh, and find me and go on these journeys of discovery together. Thank you so much, mate, and uh, really appreciate your time. Until we meet again. Beautiful. Aloha. Thanks, brother. The information. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views Opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.